We're going to read James beginning with chapter 1, verse 26, and then read through 13 of chapter 2. So 26 in chapter 1 and then through 13 of chapter 2. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brethren, do not Hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to, the, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, we've been looking at this book of James for several times now. We said that James is most likely the brother of Christ. And he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that the people that he was writing to were predominantly Jewish Christians. People who he had ministered to and been involved in their lives. But had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Um, They were experiencing various trials and troubles and testings. Uh, from without, and also some major internal problems within their gatherings in various places. Uh, We can tell this from the letter itself, that there were such problems in their midst, things like uh, 
unbelief, anger, jealousy, prejudice. It's the one we're going to mainly look at today. Self-pity, selfish ambition. And in the midst of this, James was writing to exhort them to exercise authentic faith. That's what we said is, this book is really about. It's about authentic faith, especially in the midst of trials and tribulations. In the last section that we dealt with, we saw that authentic faith will be quick to hear, especially quick to hear what God has to say and is saying because God was speaking to these people. You remember I, I mentioned that James was one of the earliest New Testament books, and so uh, God was speaking to them still in the, means, in, in the manner of uh, his authoritative apostles and, and prophets speaking to them. Uh, so be quick to hear what God's saying. Slow to speak your own mind and especially slow to react in anger. The person with authentic faith will be quick to humbly accept God's word. That's, he, James says, it's been implanted in their hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, implanting the word in their hearts. And we'll recognize that God's people will also be doers of the word. And he emphasized the importance of that. Not just hearers. That's important. It's good that we're here to hear but we have to be doers of the word. Mere hearers of the word actually deceive themselves. It's a form of self-deception just to come and hear and not act upon what we hear. James tells us in verse 25 that if we have authentic faith, we will look intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abide by it, which means we'll continue in it, not forgetting what we hear but becoming effectual doers of it. And then he gives three examples of what that effectual doing involves. Now I'm just doing, doing a quick review here is what I'm doing. Uh, three examples of what that effectual doing of God's word involves. First of all, it involves controlling the tongue. It involves helping the helpless. And it involves keeping one, ourselves, oneself, from being polluted by the world. A person with authentic faith will keep a tight rein on their words, will seek to help the helpless of this world while at the same time seeking to keep pure from the pollution, the polluting influences of the world. You'll be in the world but not of it. You'll have a love for the people of the world without loving the world's ways. So those were the three things, and that's really where we ended off last time. But in James, in this letter as he wrote it, I don't think there is any intended division uh, between verse 27 of chapter 1 and uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. No real division should be there in our thought because the flow of thought is uninterrupted. One of the ways, now here's what I want you to see here, one of the ways that the world can corrupt us is if we begin to use its ways of discrimination and prejudice and personal favoritism in our lives or in the church. See, it flows right down into this uh, area of speaking about favoritism and partiality. The reason it does that is because that's the way of the world. So he's just expanding on what he said here about keeping oneself unstained by 
the world. Verse 1 of chapter 2 tells us that having faith in Christ and having also with that some type of an attitude of personal favoritism is incompatible. You can't do it. Favoritism and true faith don't mix. They are a complete contradiction. There's a total contradiction between authentic faith and favoritism. So we need to analyze this. If this is something that cannot be compatible with faith, we need to know what what he's talking about here. What does it mean to have an attitude of personal favoritism? Well, the word favoritism actually comes from a Greek word which means receiving the face. Receiving the face. And the idea is that you make judgments about people based on their external appearance. Their external appearance. James applies this specifically to his example, in his example of people whose appearance reflects their low socioeconomic status, people with dirty clothing he talks about. But it's clear that that's just one example he chose. He's thinking of many things besides that. It has a wide range of application. In fact, I read in one of the commentaries that the way the Greek word there, favoritism, actually is in the plural, so it's like favoritisms. It's like there's all kinds of favoritisms that go on that we need to avoid. It could be judging because of what someone wears, uh, how they dress. could be the color of their skin. could be their degree of education. could be their ethnic background or social standing. And that's just a few of them. What he's dealing with is discriminating against people and showing partiality or prejudice on account of someone's outward, external circumstances or appearance, what you see on the surface. And really, I think we could say it this way. He's dealing with not dealing with people the way the world deals with people. That's what we have to avoid. Not using the world's standards, evaluating people according to the world's standards. Now, the thing is, it's popular, you see, to say that prejudice is wrong. But the fact is that fallen mankind is inherently prejudiced everywhere all the time, even when they speak out against it. And and also, the fact is, if we were all the same color and all had the same economic uh, status, we'd still find something to distinguish us from somebody else and look down upon them. Because this is the way fallen mankind is. It started right after the fall and it's been going on ever since. So it's, it's nothing to take lightly. James is really concerned about this taking place in the church. And yes, if you look through church history, you can see why that was a valid concern. Well... It's not like this was something new for these Jewish Christians to hear because their scriptures, the the Old Testament, spoke against this over and over again. Let me just read a few of the verses uh, that they should have been familiar with. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18. For the Lord your God is, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality does not show partiality or take a bribe. 
He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So that's Deuteronomy 10. And then in Deuteronomy 16, 19, we're told to, God's people were told to be the way God is. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and, and perverts his words. And then Leviticus 19.15, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor fairly. And I think it's significant in terms of what James brings up later that right after that, just a few verses later, is the verse where God says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those things go totally together. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to be prejudiced, partial, and uh, show personal favoritism. One last one, just as an example of what we're talking about. When the people wanted a king, they, saw, they chose Saul because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. They were going by the external experience, appearance didn't turn out too well. So God tells Samuel to go to, to Jesse and pick one of his sons as a successor to, to Saul. Well, I think both Samuel and Jesse had a little of this wrong attitude in them because Jesse starts bringing out his oldest kids, the ones that were the, the, the tallest and the strongest and seemed most likely to be the king. And God says, nope, don't do it that way. Let me just read the verse here. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That's as he, uh, Jesse brought his first son. He kept bringing them and, and none of them were the right ones. Because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're not supposed to judge the way the world does. I mean, sure, you want a, you want a king that's seven foot tall if you got one. But that's not what God's concerned about. He looks at the heart. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Back to James then. In the context of verse 27 of chapter 1. What James is saying is that we should not let the world's sinful ways of judging people enter into the church. Not let that kind of stuff into the church. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should not, we should not value others on the basis of external considerations, things that by and large they have no control of. If there is one place on earth where class and caste, and race, and wealth, and this type of external consideration should not matter. It's in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's just turn to Colossians, because this is what Paul brought out over and over again, but I just want to give one example of it. Colossians chapter 3. He's talking about people who, who, who have become Christians and had their minds renewed to see things the way they should see things. And in Colossians 
He says that this renewal is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, in Christ, amongst Christians, we don't erect barriers because of these type of external distinctions. He names a bunch of them here, and you could name some other ones. Nationality, and slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Uh, the, we don't allow barriers to come because of those type of things. No distinctions on that. What matters is our union with Christ. He says, Christ, what he says is, Christ is all and in all. That's what we're concerned about. Not whether this person's black or white, rich or poor, young or old, whatever. Christ is what matters. He's the thing that we're looking at and looking for in a, another person's life. In other words, we can say this. There can be unity in the midst of external diversity a great deal of external diversity. There can be unity because these things don't define us anymore. These type of things that the world looks at do not define the Christian. It does not de determine what we think about another person. It shouldn't anyway. Christ is all and in all. And the fact is Christ was constantly going about breaking down these kind of barriers of external distinctions between male and female and racial prejudice and religi the religious caste system that had built up in the Jewish religion and rich and poor. He was constantly undercutting those things by what he said and did. Even the fact, for instance, the, the uh, account of the good Samaritan. Well, why in the world did he choose a Samaritan to be good? Because Samaritans weren't supposed to be good according to the Jewish people. He did that on purpose. Yeah. To break down these, these distinctions, these worldly distinctions that have been built up over the centuries. So I say, I'll say it again, if there is one place on earth where caste and class and race and wealth and that type of thing should not matter, it's in the Church of Jesus Christ. But, sadly, this has sometimes not been the case. And I just want to say, just give you something to think about here. I can't prove this, but I think it's quite possible that America could have avoided a civil war if this basic teaching right here in James had been practiced by the professing church. You just have to think about that a little bit. This much is for sure. Favoritism can be a very subtle thing, and it can blind those who practice it to its reality. You don't see what you're doing, especially if our favoritism is reinforced by the particular group that we're in. What I mean by that is that what we're surrounded with is what we consider normal, and often what we consider normal is what we consider right. So if you're surrounded by this attitude of personal favoritism, you just kind of accept it. Now, it's easy to look back, you know, to Civil War times and say, oh, yeah, I can see, boy, that was a mess. 
I was wrong, all that favoritism and prejudice and, and the discrimination that was going on. That's not so hard to do. What's hard is to see our own right now, today. The question for us today is, are we failing in this important area of having this sinful attitude of personal favoritism? Where are we blind to reality? Let me just say again, it's a mark of authentic faith. We're talking about authentic faith. It's a mark of authentic faith that we should keep from making sinful distinctions on the basis of something we see outwardly about a person. And again, in the flow of the, of the, the uh, text here in James, what we're talking about is when a church shows favoritism, we know it has been or is being stained by the world. You're letting the world's standards creep in to the church. So again, what are we talking about? Let me just say these things again. We're talking about things like a person's nationality or physical attractiveness or height or weight or intelligence or health or skin complexion. I mean, it gets down to all kinds of things. Clothing style, athletic ability, even the kind of car people drive. I mean, you might, you might think that's outlandish, but I, I think I've been to some gatherings where if the car wasn't new and shiny, there was just kind of a sense that maybe you should be in a different church. I'm, I'm just telling you, it's, it's not a good thing. And let me, maybe this is a good si time to say something to the children, too, because we're talking about things here that happen when you're, when you're young. I can remember when I was in school that there were some of the kids that were picked on and made fun of because of personal appearance or because of the clothes they wore. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty sad, and you don't want to do that, children. Yeah. That's, what, that's what James is talking about here. Don't do that. It's sinful. It's not Christ-like. We all need to be careful about what, what James is talking about here. One of the books that I read related to this subject <clears throat> said this said we are such an image conscious society image conscious society one another person said that many of us in America suffer from the quote beautiful people syndrome we think we should be like the people in the movies or in the magazines or on TV and it's a, it's a snare. It's the world, you see. It's the world dictating uh, how we should view people. One thing is clear in the gospel. Jesus was not image conscious. Yeah. Yeah. We can be thankful for that. <clears throat> he was willing to associate with the social outcasts, the lepers, the wine drinkers, the tax collectors, and even the prostitutes. 
In fact, this one guy said, social nobodies apparently mean a lot to God. <laughs> Christ was all about breaking down those distinctions that the world makes. Well, this specific example, that's kind of just dealing with verse 1 of chapter 2. The specific example that James uses is in verse 2 through 7, which has to do with poverty and wealth. And that's been a big one throughout the ages. Economic favoritism. Now, it's, it was probably somewhat of a hypothetical example that he was giving here to bring home the point. He, he gives us a picture or an illustration of visitors or maybe new converts coming to a Christian gathering. The well-to-do newcomer is shown a place of favor. He's shown favor in this gathering and given a good seat while the poor person is treated with disdain and even contempt. The person with the shabby clothes is not treated with favor. You see, that's what we're talking about, favoritism. It's not treated with favor, but it's judged as being somehow of less importance. That's the example he gives. And he says, this is wrong, this is evil, this is ungodly and unchristlike. But why is it wrong? Well, first of all, he, he tells us here. First of all, James says in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You're making distinctions among yourselves. See, we have to view people this way, that every one of us is a person made in the image of God, but fallen from that position and therefore sinful. So a sinful image bearer of God. That's the way we should look at people. And we have to realize that everybody needs to come to Christ. That's the way we view people. Sinners who need to come to Christ. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female, Jew, Gentile, black, white, or whatever distinction they make, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Showing partiality to some makes us become judges with evil motives, he says. Judges with evil motives. We're saying that some people are more important to us because of their status in society or because what they can do for us, which is another aspect of this thing of personal favoritism. It has to do with a motive for personal favoritism. Favoritism often involves extending special favors to some person or groups for self-serving purposes. I do this, I show this favor for what I can get, you see. So it's a form of selfishness showing partiality in order to gain some advantage for yourself. Now, I don't know what this, for sure what the situation was here, but we know these were persecuted Christians and poor, poor people. And there could have been, uh, it could well be that if these Christians that James was referring to here thought that they could court some favor from the rich that were showing up, you see, gets... It might be good to get to know this rich guy a little bit because I'm kind of poor and maybe we could siphon a, siphon a little of that money down my way. Or maybe it's the idea if we could get some more of these rich people coming to our meetings that we wouldn't be so persecuted. I don't know. But that's part of this attitude of personal favoritism, you see. What can I get out of this? 
Whatever the motive was, James says it was evil. You're, you, are you not becoming judges with evil motives? So that's the first thing. The next thing he brings out is that by and large, God's kingdom is made up, is made up of poor people anyway. Poor, at least poor in the eyes of the world. The actual literal there is uh, for this uh, phrase poor of the world uh, is poor to the world. Poor to the world. Those that the world looks down on, the social outcasts, the downtrodden, the unattractive, the despised of this world are actually the ones that God most often chooses to be rich in faith. So he's saying you're going, basically what he's saying is you're going just the opposite way God's going in what you're doing here by showing uh, favoritism towards the rich and those that the world esteems highly. You know this verse, but I'll read it to you because it fits in so well here. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For, cons- for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So what James is saying here, what Paul is saying, is God often showers his grace on the despised ones of the world, the ones that are aware of their inadequacy and recognize their great need. So does that mean then that God discriminates against the rich? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because they trust in their riches. They don't, they're not in a position to trust in God because they're trusting in their riches. Wealth often leads a person to be poor in faith because it gives them a false sense of security. Whereas economic poverty can lead to poverty of spirit, which is the first step toward the kingdom of God. There's no inherent merit in poverty, but it can be a blessed thing if it helps you see that you're dependent upon God. This attitude of economic and social prejudice that James speaks of dishonors the poor person and exalts the rich who often exploit and misuse the poor, which is the next reason he says this is a bad thing to do. Poverty, obviously, was a common condition of most of the early church, especially amongst these persecuted believers. And it seems from what James is saying here is that this poverty was at least partly due to the ways the rich were treating them. In verse 6, you see this. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? He's saying, why would you, why would you uh, show personal favoritism to this rich person that comes into your meeting? They're the ones who have been dragging you into court and oppressing you. You know, they could do that probably in the courts because of money. 
and it's a sad thing, but it's true. Money can buy a good lawyer, and a good lawyer can get you off. It's still happening that way. Money gives worldly power, and worldly power often breeds corruption and exploitation. I think that's what James is saying here. He brings it out even stronger later in the, in the, book, in the letter, and we'll look at that later on. But what he's saying is, this is another reason that what you're doing is a terrible mistake. Because, again, you're going just against God's ways, just against the way God sees things. And these are the, these are the people that are often dragging you into court and exploiting and oppressing you. On top of all that, the rich were known for blaspheming the fair name of Christ. That's what he brings out in verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Blaspheming the name of Christ by which the believers were called, these Christians. The rich and powerful and worldly wise often slander Christ. So in such a situation, you would be honoring those who do not honor God and dishonoring those who God honors. It's a total distortion of reality. So to show economic or social favoritism would be to perpetuate oppression and ungodly worldly attitudes, which is why he brought this up in the first place. This is another example of the world, you see, being polluted by the world. There should be an economic and social impartiality among God's people. But as we shall see, James emphasizes something even greater than impartiality, and that's what I want to go into and close with here. Let me just read the verses. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By far the most important reason to avoid any attitude of personal favoritism is that it violates the law of love that we have in Christ. That's by far the biggest reason. James calls this the royal law in verse 8. Why Why does he call it the royal law? It's because it was the law that was given by the king, given to us by the king, And it is the primary law of the kingdom. It is the law written on the heart of all new covenant believers. It's a law that sums up all other laws, especially concerning relationships with one another. It was presented initially in Leviticus 19.18. That's what he quotes from here. He says, according to the scriptures... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
<laughs> so it was that law given initially in the Old Testament. But by calling it the royal law, James is emphasizing that this Old Testament commandment, like all the rest of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, must be understood in relationship to Christ. God's written law, the Old Testament scriptures, as fulfilled and reinterpreted to us by Christ. The royal law is the law of loving your neighbor. That's what it said in Leviticus. The law of loving your neighbor as expanded upon by the law of Christ, which is to love others as Christ loved us. Let me just mention one way in which Christ reinterpreted this law from Leviticus. In the Old Testament, neighbor meant particularly other Israelites. That's who they were talking about. But Jesus applies this idea of loving your neighbor to everyone in need. Everyone you come in contact with who's in need. And uh, that it would include foreigners and even your enemy. What James is presenting here is that favoritism violates the law of love for your neighbor. The church is forbidden to discriminate against anyone. And that's the operative word, anyone, on the basis of their status in the world's eyes. I'm going to say that again. The church is forbidden to discriminate against anyone on the basis of their status in the world's eyes. One writer put it this way, James would have us look carefully at the content of this law. Loving your neighbor as yourself requires an openness to friendship with any neighbor, regardless of the neighbor's wealth, position, status, influence, race, appearance, attractiveness, dress, abilities, and such things as that. Every Christian operates in some social group, a school, a neighborhood, a workplace, and most social groups have their social misfits, the ones who are looked down upon, ostracized, and neglected. The royal law absolutely prohibits the Christian from joining in that type of favoritism. The follower of the royal law will reach out to any neighbor. So what we're saying here is that this favoritism is anti-God. It's anti-Christ. And it's anti-gospel. Nobody should be prohibited from hearing the gospel. And favoritism does that. Favoritism would limit who we would love enough to share the gospel with. Here was a thought that really struck home with me. We are tempted to shun those who would take away from our glory. But the Lord of glory was not like that. See, if I associate with these people, I'll lose a little status. If I let these people too close to me, that might bring me down. Christ was not like that at all. He was just the opposite of that. So if we show partiality towards certain people... We are sinning. That's what he says. He just says it about as clear as you can say it. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
Partiality, sin. You couldn't say it any plainer. If we keep the royal law, we're doing well. So you got the two things. You either show partiality, you're sinning, you keep the royal law, you're doing well. If we show partiality, we're convicted by the laws, transgressors of, that, of God's law. We have not just broken a small part of God's law, James says, but we've broken it all, and we're guilty of all. Now that's, you know, at first that sounds kind of strange. And you might say, well, how can that be? Well, it's because the law of God is a unit. The law of God is indivisible. You can't just separate one part out. Why is that? Well, it comes to us from one God. It's, if you break God's will, you break God's will. So it, come, it comes to us from one God and has one essential attribute, which is love. One common commentator said it this way. The law is a unit. Its unity is love. To violate it at one point is to violate love, and as such, you violate the whole law. I thought that, to me, this kind of helps a little bit. If you think of it as a chain with ten links, chain with many links, okay? If you break any link of the chain, the chain's broken. You can't say this picture, I got this ten link chain here. You can't say, well, I... I just, uh, well, let's put it this way. I didn't break link 9 or 10. I just broke link 6. So that's not so bad, is it? You just broke the chain. You broke the chain. You broke the whole law. Besides that, even though the links represent different laws of God, they are essentially the same length because they all have to do with loving as Christ loved. That's what the law is all about. So James uses the examples of adultery and murder. And what he says is it's not enough to say I I never committed adultery. If you commit murder, you're guilty of breaking the law, you see. You can't try to excuse your failure to observe one part of God's law by pointing to your obedience in another part of God's law. It's a unit. Ultimately, any violation of law at any point is a terrible sin because you've gone against God's will and his supreme law, which is the law of love. No matter where you break it, you're breaking that law somehow. I think it's possible that James chose the commandment against murder to emphasize his point because of what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I might just say a little aside here. Sometime I might try to take the time to go through the book of James and show how many comparisons there are with the Sermon on the Mount. It's incredible. James would have probably known that pretty well since he grew up with Christ. Remember that Christ explained and expanded this commandment against murder to include being angry with your brother or saying mean or demeaning things about someone. He said that's like murder. So I think it was probably on James' mind, that truth that Christ brought out, that when we mistreat someone, it involves the beginnings of an attitude that, if taken to an extreme, would actually seek to destroy that person. Favoritism creates categories of differing worth. 
Some people have less value to us than others. And history shows that once you create that type of attitude, you're on your way to exploiting, oppressing, or even killing those deemed less desirable. This thing of differing worth. To bring that home to us here today, let's just take James's illustration and bring it into the 20th century. I know we live in the 21st, but I'm going to use a 20th century example. Here's two people that come into a congregation in Nuremberg, Germany in the early 1930s. One of them is a fine from a fine German family, and the other is a Jew. You, you pay special attention to the German and say, you sit here in this good place, and you say to the Jew, you stand over there or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? See how it fits? Exactly what James is saying here. James says that's sinful. That's terribly sinful. If we just see the beginnings of these things, sometimes they don't look so sinful. But you look where they end up. They're terrible. He says you're guilty of breaking the whole law if you do that. And you've gone against Christ's royal law of love. What starts out as seemingly a small sin of personal favoritism can result in something as evil as the Nazi concentration camps. So I say, I use that example just to say, we should be very concerned about this that James is talking about here. If we sense this, any of this attitude of partiality creeping into our thinking, viewing people as less worthy of our favor because of some outward external consideration, we should be very concerned. Instead of that type of thinking, we need to recognize all people as equally made in the image of God and as sinners equally in need of grace and mercy. Favoritism limits who we think can be a recipient of our love and even who we should share the gospel with, and that's wrong. Nobody should ever be prohibited from hearing the gospel because we think they're different than us. Christ showed no partiality, and neither should we as his people. Another way of saying this is that we should be a genuine counterculture to the world's ways, a genuine counterculture where the barriers of race and rank and wealth are broken down because of Christ. Again, he was all about doing away with these type of personal favoritism, these types of distinction and viewing things from a fallen world, people from a fallen world's perspective. So, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism.